I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the simple and short phrase that Paul says. He, in verse 18, is the head of the body, the church. But let me read for us verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would feed us. Feed us words of eternal life. Sanctify us according to your truth. I pray that you would give us understanding of your word and an understanding that would then lead to a rejoicing and a delight in what we are understanding. Lord, we pray that Christ here would be exalted and we pray that we would be strengthened for the glory of his name. We pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, we've looked um, thus far at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. And the first week we saw that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That is, he's the the fullest revelation of God. And then last week we looked at Christ being the firstborn of all creation. That is, he has this supreme title and rule over all of creation. And the reason we saw is that in him all things were created, for him all things were created, and all things are sustained by him. And now here in verse 18, I think there's a shift in Paul's writing. In verse 16 to 17, he's, he's, demonstrated that Christ's, he's demonstrated Christ's supremacy over the current cosmos that we live in. But in verse 18, I think Paul seeks to demonstrate Christ's supremacy over the new creation. And he does this by first demonstrating Christ's supremacy over the church. Now you might be asking, well, how does that, how does the church have to do with the new creation? Well, the scriptures make clear that the church, the people of God, those saved by the blood of Christ, born of the Spirit, are the first fruits of the new creation. James 1.18 alludes to this where James states, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of of his creatures. That is, the people of God are the first fruits, the the first harvest of the new creation. Remember, Paul talks about how in Christ we are new creatures, we are new creations. And central to the new creation, central to the new creation is the new people, the church. This is precisely Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8, in 18 to 23, where where Paul talks about how the creation itself 
is longing for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. So let me read to you Romans 8, 18 to 23, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Isn't that fascinating? The creation, this current creation that we are living in, which is broken and fallen, is waiting with an eager longing. For what? For the revealing of the sons of God, or for the revealing of the children of God. The creation is longing for the revealing of the children of God, that is, for the children of God to be revealed in their resurrected, glorified state. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Right now, the creation is in bondage. It's under corruption. But there's this hope that one day the creation is going to be set free. But what are they going to be set free to? Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is longing to obtain the freedom that we as the children of God have experienced in Christ and will experience in its fullness at his return. For we know, as Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we, we as the people of God are the first fruits of the new creation, and we long for the full harvest where we'll be resurrected and the new creation will experience, in a sense, a kind of resurrection as well. And this is why I think Paul, in verse 18, when transitioning to Christ's supremacy over the new creation, he begins with Christ's supremacy over the church. As he states in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Now this body image in describing the church, is used in several places by Paul in the New Testament. So, for example, in Romans 12, 3-8, Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All Paul's saying there is, is that we are, as individuals, members of one body, and God has given each of us gifts in different ways to serve that one body. Or 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 to 26, where he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged. God is the one who arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow to greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, Paul uses this body image to convey that each member of the body is significant and that we ought not never neglect the body nor wrong other parts of the body because we're one body and God has assigned, assigned each member to that one body. See, the, the focus of those texts, the emphasis of those texts which I just read, they primarily deal with the relationship between the different body parts, the, the hand and the foot. It's, it's primarily concerned about how each member or each Christian within the body relates to one another. But here, in Colossians 1.18, Paul's focus isn't the relationship between the body, but the relationship between the body and the head. The focus is on our connection to the head, the role that the head has over the body, and the role we have in relation to the head. And there are two truths that come out of Christ being the head of the body, the church. And these two truths are what I want us to focus on this morning. The first truth is this. Christ, as the head of the body, nourishes and brings life and growth to the body. We see this idea in Colossians 2, 18-19. So just one chapter over. Look at Colossians 2, 18-19, where Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without, without reason by his sensuous mind, then he says this, and not holding fast to the head, and then this, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The whole body of Christ is nourished and knit together and grows from a growth from God according to the head. That is Christ. 
You see, the idea here is that Christ, as the head of the body, has the sole responsibility of nourishing and growing the body. The care and growth of his people is his responsibility. He is the great shepherd of his sheep, and he knows what his sheep need and don't need. He knows how to feed his sheep and nourish his sheep. But I think a question we need to ask is, how? How does he nourish and grow the body? Well, I can promise you this. It won't be because of the latest fad or some new invention that Christ comes up with or that we as the church come up with. Christ has established, he has appointed the means by which he grows and nourishes his church. The church has historically called these things the ordinary means of grace. They are means of grace, but they are ordinary in their nature. Christ works, nourishes, grows his people through ordinary things. I've seen it all too often, and even in my own heart, the temptation to find the secret ingredient to see the people of God go from here to here. To grow from here to here, to, to get over that hump, to, to find that secret ingredient. When in reality, the secret is simply faithfulness to the ordinary means that Christ has established for the growing and nourishment of his people. And what are those ordinary things? Well, let me just list a few. Baptism. Participation in the Lord's Supper. Prayer. The preaching of God's Word. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, asks, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The answer? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Or, take for example the London Baptist Confession of Faith in regards to Holy Communion. It states this, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him the same night wherein He was betrayed to be observed in His churches unto the end of the world. And then He tells us for what purpose. One, for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice in His death. Two, the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof. Three, their spiritual, spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. Their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to Him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Him and with each other. That is, when we come to the Lord's table, it's not simply an act of remembrance. It's also an act of confirmation. It's also a means by which God nourishes and grows His people. Christ meets with us by faith at His table. See, this is one of the reasons why I believe participating in the Lord's Supper together ought to happen on a more regular basis. I really believe the Lord's Supper is just as central to the worship of God's people as the preaching of God's Word is. Now that's for another day, of course. But here's the point. Christ nourishes and grows His people through the ordinary means appointed by Him. And this is one of the reasons why when you come to Royal York, 
There's nothing spectacular or innovative about what we do here in our corporate gatherings. We come by faith to sing to the Lord and to one another, to pray, to confess our sins to one another, to hear the scriptures read, to hear the word preached, to partake of the Lord's Supper together, to fellowship with one another. Because these are the things that Christ has appointed for the nourishment and growth of his people. And as the head of the body, he knows what the body needs. You see, if, if someone were to decapitate me, what would happen to my body? Well, my body would decay and die. Which means when the spiritual body of Christ, the church, has no regard for the head, the body will decay and die. And this is why, as Paul puts it in Colossians 2.19, that we must hold fast to the head. If we disregard the head and the ways in which he nourishes his body, we will decay and die. And this happens more often than we realize. When churches move away from Christ and his word and capitulate to the culture, you inevitably see a slow decay and inevitable death that has begun. And so, brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to the head, to the one who nourishes and grows us and keeps us walking in the truth. That's the, that's the first idea of headship. Christ nourishes and grows his people. Secondly, Christ as the head of the body has supreme authority and rule over the body. That's really the main idea that I think Paul is getting at here in verse 18 of Colossians 1. There is only one fundamental supreme authority in the church, and that is Jesus Christ. He died for his blood-bought church, and he has been given dominion and authority over his blood-bought church. You remember Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 18-19? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice that he says, my church. I will build my church. The church belongs to Christ, and thereby has sole authority over the bride of Christ. Which means, the church's responsibility is to submit to Christ's authority and to follow what he has said to humble ourselves and acknowledge that he knows what is true, what is good, and what is best. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have Christ uh, speaking to the seven churches. And it's incredible the authority of Christ displayed over the seven churches in the things that he says to them. He addresses the churches, and, and in each address, he, he knows certain things about them, he rebukes them or encourages them based upon what he knows. He brings severe warning to the churches. He grants reward and blessings to the churches. For example, the first church, which is the church in Ephesus, he says this in Revelation 2, 2-7. I know your works. He knows their works. 
your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He knows what's going on in the church of Ephesus. And the reason he knows is because just before this, we're told that Jesus walks amongst the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He's in the midst of them. That's how he can say, I know this about you. Not only that, he also rebukes them. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He knows their works. He also rebukes them and calls them to repentance. But then he also gives them severe warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant. Now we're getting into the reward that he grants. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Christ alone is the only one who has the authority to grant to his church the privilege of eating of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He knows, he rebukes, he warns, and he rewards. And the only reason he is able to do any of this is because he is the head of the body, the church. I wonder, like the church in Ephesus, what Jesus would say to us at Royal York. What would he tell us that he knows about us? What would he rebuke us for? What would he encourage us about? What warnings might he give us? What blessings would he promise? I hope that if he were to give us any encouragement, it would be that we've been faithful in following, trusting, and submitting to him as the head of the body. You know, through my short lifetime, I've heard several times and on many occasions in different contexts the idea of the pastor or the pastors creating a vision for his church. And in one sense, I get what's being said. Pastors need to lead the people that God has entrusted to them. But honestly, from the first time I ever heard that, when I was younger and even today, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. I've never been comfortable with that kind of language. I don't believe pastors create a vision for their church. Pastors are simply called to help the people of God see the vision that Christ has for his church. That's revealed in his word. My job isn't to create a vision for you. My job is simply to help you see the vision that Christ has already created for us. Pastors aren't the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body. He is the one who has sole authority over his blood, 
bought church. Now because of this, because Christ is the authority over his church, I think it's important for us to think about authority as Christians. Our secular society is deeply suspicious of authority. In fact, I would argue that our society sees authority not as a good thing, but more as a necessary evil. But hear this. We as Christians are in many ways just as culpable in this as our society is. And if I can be frank, this past year has exposed just how suspicious we can be about authority. And I get it. In one sense, there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of human authority. Human history has shown how authority can be abused and cause great harm even in the church. But hear me on this. A Christian's first instinct to authority shouldn't be suspicion. Because God has ordained authority for the good of humanity. And also know this. Unlike human authority that is often abused and used wrongly, Christ exercising his authority over his church is always good. There has never been a moment in human history where Christ has abused his authority. Christ's authority always brings life. Christ's authority is like the authority that David describes when it comes to the man who rules justly in 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Have you often viewed authority like that? It brings life. It allows, it brings rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ ruling over his church can only bring life. Yes, sometimes his under-shepherds can abuse their authority. But Christ never does. He can be trusted. And I hope that as a church, we will always remember that Christ is the head of his body. He is the head of Royal York Baptist Church. And so let us submit to him in all things and follow him wherever he may lead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made it explicitly clear that there is only one individual who has supreme authority over your people, and his name is Jesus. And I pray that as a church, we would truly believe that and live by it, that we would submit to him in all things and follow him and hold fast to him who is our head. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.